morning, everyone. It's time for us to begin our worship service here at West Irwin. If you're visiting with us, we're, we're glad you're here this morning, and happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. As we begin our services this morning, let's all stand as we sing our first song. church. Isn't it good to be gathered here today as God's people to worship God on this beautiful Sunday morning, Father's Day. I want to give you all a few updates, and one of them that is important is that the uh, Youth Minister Search Committee is narrowing the prospect list down, and I think that they're going to have an announcement in the next few weeks, we hope. So 
All of that's good. We're moving forward on that. That's wonderful. This is Father's Day, and happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. I uh, am a father myself. Of course, obviously had a father as well. So I want to do a little preaching, but not much meddling this morning about that. So I'm bad about speaking too long up here, but this morning will be an important one. You know, I'm not a research scientist or psychiatrist or psychologist or any other is there is. But I have noticed a distinction in this world through my 60 years of life in the children who are raised by a godly Christian loving father and those that are not. There's a distinction that survives their life. And so I urge all of the fathers here in this audience that can hear this to be men of God, Christian men of God, not just Christians with a name tag, but biblical Christians who live the Christian life, who put God and their wives and their children in front of themselves and provide for them who are the leaders of their household in a Christian manner. Because it dates back a long ways in mankind's history. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. Were they looking for Jesus? Absolutely not. What they were looking for was a Messiah who would be strong and powerful and defeat the Romans and run them out of their country and out of their land. And that's what the world tells us as fathers we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the powerful, physical, powerful entity in our family and suppress everyone to get our own will. And that's not what this is all about. Because that will work, but it only works for a very short period of time, and then it all falls apart. But Jesus led us by example because he did not come to be earthly kingdom leader who was going to defeat the Romans and anyone else that stood in front of him. No, he came to serve. And that is the example of us as Christian fathers that we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be servants. We're supposed to be leaders. We're supposed to teach our children the Bible. We're supposed to teach them how to pray. We're supposed to love our wives. And I don't want this to be a downer message. We just need to maybe reflect on our, what we're doing as fathers and make sure that we are leading our families in a Christian manner because it will pay dividends for generations, not just today or tomorrow, but for 100 years. It will pay dividends for a long time. So as we begin our service this morning, let's think about that. Fathers, if you need to make a change in your life, let's make today that day. Let's get into the Word. Let's study the Bible. Let's be the Christian men that we need to be because our families will benefit from it, our community will benefit from it, and our nation will benefit from it. Let's bow. Dear God, we come before you this morning acknowledging you as to who you are. You are the creator of this universe the creator of everything that we can see, the creator of ourselves. You have been here forever and will be here forever. That is hard for us to comprehend, dear God, but we know it's true because you have said it is true. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, for all those in our congregation this morning who are, who are sick, who are unable to be here. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, also for those who have chosen not to be here, that you will have an influence on them to help them make a change in their life so they know what's truly important. We pray to our Heavenly Father for the Youth Search Committee that they will make wise decisions and give us the, the man that will lead this church forward with the youth and the young families. There will be a man of God 
We pray, dear Heavenly Father, your guidance on them. We thank you for all the effort and the time that they have spent working on this to fill this position. We thank you and for each and every one of them and their families as well. And please bless all of them for that. We thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for all the fathers that are here. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you will help instill in us a desire to, to lead our families as Christians. That you will help us to lead our families to know you. That you will help us to change the path of the world. by being the examples that we, we should be. Dear God, we've come before you this morning as your, your people, your church, all different yet all the same. We have a common goal, and that is to be Christians and to be your children and to follow your will so that we may enjoy the promise of salvation and the eternity in heaven with you. We look forward to to that day when you tell us, enter my good and faithful servant. We thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. The example that you gave us that he put the world in front of his own wishes and desires. Because if he had come to this earth with his own wishes and desires, he probably would have never left heaven. That's the example us as fathers need to understand and follow, that we will be servant leaders. Dear Heavenly Father, we fail you and we fail you often for that. We're indeed sorry. We ask your forgiveness for that and that you will help us to, to come closer to you and Try to eliminate as best as possible our, our failings and shortcomings in this life. Pray, dear Heavenly Father, that this worship will be in accordance to your will. And that we will do all things always in accordance to your will, the best of our ability. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here this morning, and it's great to see all of y'all. Today is a day that's set aside by our nation to honor all of our fathers. Did a little research on the beginning of Father's Day, and I found that it first uh, was celebrated July the 5th, 1908. There was a mining disaster that killed hundreds of men in West Virginia. A young lady named Grace Golden, whose father was a minister, proposed that they have a Sunday service to honor all of those who were killed in that disaster. A little later in 1908, Sonora Smart Dodd proposed a service to honor her father, who was a Civil War veteran and raised her and her five siblings as a single parent. In 1972, President Richard Nixon declared that Father's Day would be celebrated on the third Sunday in June. You know, we all have earthly fathers, and those earthly fathers can wear a lot of hats. Sometimes they're a teacher, they are an example, they're problem solvers, they're confident, they're disciplinarians, they're etc. I know I, I felt like my dad could fix anything. He related a story to me one time. In 1936, he was traveling from Tyler to Beaumont, and he blew a fan belt on the car way out in the middle of nowhere, what to do. Takes off his belt and makes a fan belt, finishes the trip. I never could have thought of that. But we lean on our fathers for different questions. We might need to know about investments or who to marry or about marriage itself. Back in the day, I would have had to ask my dad if I could borrow the car. Today, kids say, can I have a car? But all of these questions are very mundane as compared to the questions that Jesus had for his father. If you would look at Luke 22, Verse 39 and following. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then he went from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus knew what his mission was and he was asking his father, if there's any way, can you take this from me? Let's think about God for a minute. This is his only son and his son is asking him to live, not to die. But God decides that he needs to fulfill scripture and die for all of our sins. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful and we're humbled by the fact that you chose to send your one and only son to the earth to teach us how to live and ultimately to sacrifice his own life so that we may be forgiven of our sins and have a heavenly home with you in the end. Father, as we partake of this bread, we ask that you would help us to focus on Christ and that sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father God, again we approach your throne thanking you for Jesus and partaking of this cup in remembrance of him and the blood that he shed for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We have an opportunity to return some of the physical things that God blesses us with. If you're here in attendance with us this morning, you may place your contribution in the box that is out in the foyer. If you're viewing with us online, uh, you may send your contribution in electronically or you can mail it into the office. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you bless us so bountifully, and for that we are indeed grateful. We pray, Father, that as we return some of the things that you give to us, we hope that we may do it in a cheerful and loving heart so that we know that we are helping to further your word and helping the other people in teaching your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing about these wonderful blue skies as our kids come up for kids' time today. Blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven are what I can see. When my Lord is living in me, I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my heart. Nevermore will I be all alone since he Promise me that we never would part. Tall mountains, green valleys, the beauty that surrounds me are works of the Master. I live for each day. I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my heart. Nevermore will I be all alone since he promised me that we never would part. Our first uh, kids' time, right, Joni? <laughs> Yay! Yay, you can stay up with her if you like, that'd be fine. Uh, you'd have to face the whole congregation, so I understand. Um, what, tell me what today is. Father's Day, that's right, that's exactly right. And you already gave your daddy a present. Well, that is wonderful. What was it? What was it? A box, wonderful. I know that's, that's, uh, that's probably one of your favorite presents, right? Yeah. Um, well, how many, who else gave their dad a present today or their granddad? Okay, good. Well, you know, God gives us wonderful gifts. Who wants to tell what they gave their dad or granddad for a gift today? What? Well, you think about it for a minute and we'll come back to you, okay? What did you give? Pants and a shirt. Always very practical, wonderful. Kaisley? A Connect Four game. Wonderful. Yeah, I bet you get to play with, with him with that, right? A new knife and a new shirt. Yeah, both of those very, very good gifts. Okay, and yes, you have one. What? A four-wheeler. A four-wheeler. Wow. <laughs> a scary monster truck at the store. Okay, well, I, I can see how these lists kind of coincide. Father's Day gifts, my personal Christmas list. So that's... Uh, <laughs> That, that's always good. You know, we have a heavenly father, don't we? 
Our God is our Heavenly Father. And just like we get to talk to our dads or our granddads or an uncle, we also get to talk to our Heavenly Father. And what do we call that? We call that prayer. And that's a great, great blessing. And God always wants us to pray to Him. And He always wants us to talk to Him. And unlike Father's Day where we give our dads or our granddads or someone else special a gift... God has given us gifts that we celebrate every day, and we're very, very thankful for that. And one of the great blessings he gives us is this beautiful world that we have, like these wonderful blue skies and how he has given to us his one and only son, Jesus. So as we go back to our seats or go to our blast or children's program, let's sing about Jesus one more time. I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my heart. Nevermore will I be all alone since he promised me that we never would part. For Bill's message to us this morning, and all the kids are now dismissed to the children's blast program let's all stand and sing the great redeemer number 250 how I love the great Well, as has been said, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. What a wonderful blessing our godly men are here at the West Irwin Church of Christ. We're very, very grateful for each of you and for the contribution you make, not only to your family and to this community, but certainly to our church uh, as well. Uh, If you uh, haven't given your dad or granddad or uncle or brother or a a godly man that has had an impact on you, if you haven't shared with them how much you appreciate them and you want to offer them some encouragement today, here's a great way to do that. On the pew, the back of the pew in front of you are our encouragement cards. We've been 
uh, starting this ministry back up over the last few weeks and have had a lot of folks who have received these, a lot of folks who have sent them out. I encourage you to do that. Fill that out, leave it at the end of the pew, or there's a big brown box, not the black contribution boxes, but a big brown box in the information booth. And it says encouragement cards on it, and you're welcome to put that in there. And we will mail that out this week. They'll get that by about the middle of the week. And, uh, and what a great blessing this is. If you've ever received one of these, then you're sold on the value that they have. And so I encourage us all to take part uh, in that great ministry. Just a little, I love you, appreciate you, I thank you for all you do. And, and that's all it has to be. And so it's a great, great blessing, especially uh, today when we have so many that have touched our lives and have helped our church. You know, um, as I think about Father's Day, Mother's Day, uh, special days like that, I realize that there's um, a lot of joy involved in that, and there's also a a tinge of sadness uh, as well, because we remember that uh, some of those godly men who have impacted our lives in such a great degree have passed on and have gone on to be with our Heavenly Father. And so uh, we've had a lot of our folks in this church family over the last few years that have lost husbands, uh, fathers, brothers, um, uh, grandfathers, uncles, even sons. And so for you, we certainly uh, offer our encouragement and our love and our prayers. It's a great blessing to know that when we face those times, we don't face them alone, but we face them with a church family of people around us. And that's a great, a great blessing. Um, so a, little, a couple of little quips about Father's Day. One little boy's definition of Father's Day went like this. Well, it's just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much. <laughs> I think a possible exception to that might be a four-wheeler. <clears throat> um, and then this, a father wrote about what happened when his son was about five years old. They attended a church where it was common for the preacher to invite children to the front for a special sermon. I wouldn't know anything about a church like that, uh, but it sounds very similar to our kids' time, of course. Well, during one of those, um, the preacher brought up a smoke detector and asked the children if anyone knew what it meant when the alarm went off. Well, one child immediately raised his hand and said, it means daddy's cooking dinner. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. You know, as we consider the relationships our Lord had while on the earth, on this Father's Day, I want us to look at Jesus and his earthly family, because he had one. And that begins with his ancestry. Jesus had an earthly family. The writer of Hebrews makes a big point of that, saying that it's part of what qualifies him to be our our great high priest, fully human and at the same time being fully divine. And without being fully human, without being born and and being tempted in every way, just like we are, though we never sinned, that is what qualifies him to be our great high priest. That is what qualifies him to be willing and able to give his life and be our savior. And so this morning on this Father's Day in 2021, I want us to take a look at the earthly family of Jesus and how he interacted with them as we continue this series of Jesus and many of the relationships that he had while he lived on this earth. And it begins with his ancestry. Jesus descended from a royal line. In his bloodline were kings. And Jesus descended from that royal line. Matthew and Luke both chart the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew in chapter 1, Luke in chapter 3, and yes, they are different. I kind of go along with those who who, uh, look at those lists and do their research, and it appears that uh, while Matthew approaching it from a, uh, a more legal perspective, establishing Jesus as the uh, Savior and the descendant of Abraham... Um, Matthew approaches it from Joseph's line. Uh, Luke seems to approach it more from Mary's line. Uh, Both of them, Joseph and Mary, were descendants of King David. One of the places where that varies is the next generation after King David. Uh, Matthew charts 
David through Solomon. Luke charts David through his, another son, Nathan, not the prophet that confronted Nathan, but his son. Uh, in both of those instances, as you look through that, we are able to receive very uh, specific proof that Jesus was descended not just from David, but from Abraham, which is obviously so very, very important because for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, he had to be descended from Abraham. He had to be of the people of the Jews. And so from the very beginning, uh, Matthew tells us that that was the case. And Luke in chapter 3 tells us that was the case. Uh, Jesus was descended from a royal line. And so that leads us to the second thing today, and that is that, yes, Jesus had an earthly family. We don't think about that sometimes as we are involved so deeply into our family, and then we come here to church and we worship a risen Savior, and rightly so. But we have to remember that during those 30-something years that Jesus was on this earth, he had an earthly family. He had parents and he had siblings. We see that first of all in Matthew chapter 1 at the very beginning. Um, In this interaction as Matthew records it, this discussion that his earthly parents would have, Joseph and Mary, uh, before he was even born. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. I've always admired Joseph. And primarily because of this, the the scripture already puts him in a positive light because they say, even though he was a righteous man, he was faithful to the law and the law said if If someone has committed adultery, then they're to be put away. And and he was willing to do that to Mary. In the eyes of most of the Jews, they were already married, but they were betrothed. They were engaged, as we might say. And she was found to be with child. And when Joseph talked to her about that, what did she say? Well, she said, I had this vision. This angel Gabriel came to me. He said, even though this is impossible, it was going to happen because this is going to be God's savior that he's bringing and he will be called the son of God. And Joseph said, well, I can't buy that. And it's interesting to me that Joseph receives this vision, but only after he's found out, only after he's talked to Mary. Mary hears about it at the beginning. But Joseph has to respond by faith in just what Mary said. And though he loves her dearly, he's he's not willing to go against the law of God. And so he has in mind to put her away, but to do that in a very quiet way and divorce her that way. And then Joseph receives a visit from the angel. And as crazy and ridiculous and impossible as it sounded to Joseph, he knows it's going to sound that way to everyone else. But he answers the call. And he welcomes Mary into his home, though they do not have any sexual relations until after the birth of Jesus. And they become Jesus' earthly parents. Luke chapter 2, of course, gives much more familiar, it gives us much more detail uh, than the other gospel writers. In the first part of that, it talks about his birth. And the second part of of Luke chapter 2 is that story where Jesus is presented at the temple and 
And Simeon and Anna both give great prophecies about what's in store for him and for this family. And then at the end of Luke 2, there is that story that when Jesus was 12 years old and Joseph and Mary took him uh, with them, as they would every year, to Jerusalem to observe the festival, and Jesus is left there. And they think he's with relatives, and then they go back and ask him why they would do such a thing, and he tells them that he must be about his father's business, must be at his father's house. Shouldn't have surprised you, even after just 12 years. And at the end of Luke 2, it says that Jesus grew. He grew uh, socially, he grew physically, he grew emotionally, he grew spiritually. And as he relates to his parents, it says that he was submissive to them. The son of God growing up as an earthly son as well. But it wasn't just earthly parents. Jesus also had siblings. We're surprised to think of that. Some would question that. But in Matthew 13 and in the other passage that are passages listed on your outline, there, there, uh, the gospel writers indicate that Jesus had an earthly family. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown in Nazareth, the people that had seen him grow up for 30 years or so. Coming to his hometown, Matthew 13, verse 54, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They just couldn't bring themselves to believe that this local boy was really the son of God. That this boy that they had seen grow up was actually this important preacher and actually the Messiah. They couldn't accept the fact that this boy, whose parents they knew, whose brothers and sisters they knew, could be that person. And so the people of his hometown had difficulty with that. In Mark 6, he's called the carpenter, as it relates a similar passage. And in Luke 4, as in Matthew 13, he's called the carpenter's son. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Jesus had an earthly family. How did that family accept him when he went off to preach? Well, that's letter C on your outline. Jesus' family did not respond well to his ministry. They did not respond well to his ministry. We see this very beginning in John chapter 2 with Jesus' first miracle, and it involves his mother, Mary. He's at this wedding reception, and in John 2, beginning at verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. That's where Jesus was raised, in the province of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) His mother convinced him, like mothers are able to do with their children, their sons, even adult sons. (laughs) There is still uh, that ability and that force that they have. And so even though Jesus, in a sense, rebukes her, and that's not a a term that sounds as rude and crude as we might in our culture today, much more common in the first century Jews, but Jesus tells her, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to reveal myself in this way, but Mary won't let it go. And it's interesting that she knows that her son can do something to help. I'm not sure what she expected. But Mary, at least at this moment, shows great faith and tells the servants, do whatever he says. If only that was a trend that continued throughout Jesus' ministry. But it does not. We turn forward a few chapters in the book of John and we get to John chapter 7. Jesus and his family are talking about one of the uh, 
three sacred uh, festivals of the Jews, the festival of tabernacles, where they're called since the temple was up in Jerusalem to, to make a journey there. And so in John 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, where Jerusalem was located, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him already. Verse 2, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if we stop there, we're not sure exactly what's behind all of this, but John, the apostle, who was there (laughs) and writing this, says this in verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So now we can hear the tone, can't we? Now they're saying, okay, we've seen all this stuff that you're doing. You're, you're supposed to be somebody. So if you're supposed to be somebody, don't stay up here in Galilee. Go down to Jerusalem, especially now because there's a festival there and lots of folks are going to be there. You should go there, Mr. Big Shot. You should show everybody there what you're showing people here. Well, as we keep reading in verse 10, however, um, let's start at verse uh, 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here for you. Any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time, my hour, has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee for a while. Verse 10, however, after his brothers left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly because they were afraid. And it may very well be that that's something that his family saw and responded to as well. Well, now we keep reading and ask ourselves, well, how much does this continue? And we turn to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20, we read these words. When Jesus, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now they seem to be not just disbelieving, but actually fearful for him, worried about him, concerned about him, thinking that he's not eating, he's got this idea that he's the Messiah, and, and, and some, somebody needs to act. Somebody needs to get him and take care of him. And that's their desire. And then in the verses that follow, there's this discussion and interchange between Jesus and some of the Jews there. And then we read in Mark 3, verse 30, uh, starting at verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Possibly the view of this background that we have on the PowerPoint slides today. Verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We see similar incidents like this a few other times in the Gospels as Jesus interacts with people and his family demonstrates they don't buy this. And not only do they not believe, they're actually worried about his well-being. In Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, someone says to him, Blessed is the woman who gave you birth and who nursed you when you were an infant. But Jesus rebukes her and says, Blessed rather are the people who hear my words and obey them. 
And then in Mark 10, we get an insight into what this meant to Jesus. Because as he's talking about what it means to be his disciple and the sacrifices one has to make to do that, his apostles tell him, look, we've left everything to follow you. And we've left everybody to follow you. And that's when Jesus makes that statement in Mark 10, no one who has left their family, their their mother, their father, their brothers, their sisters, their heritage, their, their close relationships. No one who has sacrificed material things for me, given up all of these things, no one of those will go through without being blessed in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. Jesus knew what it was like to do the will of the Father and pay the price of losing a relationship with your family. He understood that. He experienced that. And I'm sure his heart broke over it. But though Jesus' family did not respond well to his family, they ultimately came around. Jesus' family became believers after the cross and resurrection. And it's an amazing thing. We read about it starting in John 19 when Jesus is dying on the cross. And we know one of those seven uh, responses that Jesus actually makes on the cross before he dies. One of them is about his earthly mother. He sees Mary down there who was there at at his cross. And he sees John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, there beside her. And he makes sure that his mother is going to be taken care of. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't call on his brother, James, or his brother, Jude, or one of his other brothers or sisters to do that, but he calls on John. And he says, basically, he says, John, I want you from this day forward to think of her as your own mother. And mother, I want you to think of this young man, this John, as your own son. And from that time on, John took special care of Mary the mother of Jesus. And then we turn to Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, there's, of course, the beginning is Jesus having been resurrected, now interacts with his apostles, and then ascends into heaven. And in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, we get an idea of who is there with these believers, with these disciples. Verse 12 of Acts 1, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were the 12 apostles and then their name, or the 11 apostles. We've lost Judas Iscariot, of course, and in just a little bit, he'll be replaced with Matthias. But the other 11 are named there. And then in verse 14, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And the term probably indicates his brothers and his sisters. They're there. They're there with the believers. They're there with the apostles. They're there with the other disciples of this Jesus that had grown up in their home and that they had struggled with during his earthly ministry. We go a little further and we turn to a couple of books that are written by Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude, two of the ones that were named in the gospel accounts. James identifies himself as a servant of the Lord. Interestingly enough, Jude identifies himself as a servant of the Lord and brother of James. Well, why is that? Well, I think we know. As we turn further on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, we we read very quickly that this James, not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, remember that James was killed, the first apostle killed at the beginning of Acts chapter 12. This James is that half-brother of the Lord. And in Acts chapter 1, uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 17, 
we read this. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. This was after James the apostle had been killed. Peter had been arrested by King Herod to do the same. The church had been praying for both. And now Peter is released and he meets them up. He interacts with them. And then Peter says uh, this in verse 17. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Tell James. Naming him specifically. In Acts chapter 15, as the apostles and other church leaders, the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they they get together with the elders of the church in Jerusalem and they meet in Acts 15 to talk about now that we're baptizing all of these non-Jews, what are we going to do with them? And it's James, the brother of the Lord, who takes control. And it's James who decides. Here's a suggestion. Here's what we should do. Even saying in verse 19, it's my judgment, therefore. And he goes on and talks about what should happen. In Acts chapter 21, as Paul recounts some of his journeys, in Acts 21, beginning at verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, Luke recounting this story of Paul, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. We see the same thing in Galatians. In chapter 1, as Paul is telling his story, points out James. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, and the verses that follow, Paul says, look, when I went to Jerusalem, I didn't see anybody except for Peter and for James. I didn't see any of the other apostles. Well, what happened? What changed? How is it that this man and his siblings who had refused to believe, who had questioned him, who had treated him very sarcastically, had become not only just believers and disciples, but James and Jude, writers of New Testament books, and James especially, probably one of the elders and and leaders of the church at Jerusalem. Well, we know what happened. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he says that resurrection was affirmed by eyewitnesses. And he begins to name them, some individuals, some big crowds. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, he very simply says, then he appeared to James. And we get it. We get it. James had seen his brother crucified on the cross, buried in the tomb, and now very much alive. And raised from the dead. And it changed his life. It changed how he felt. It changed his priorities. It changed his future. And he gave that future to serving, not his brother, but his Savior. In a few minutes, we'll sing as we close today, Have you seen Jesus, my Lord? He's here in plain view. Take a look. Open your eyes. He'll show it to you. That's what happened with Jesus' family. That's what can happen to you. So as we close then, what about our families today? Just a few quick things. Number one, do not put them before Christ and his kingdom. As much as we love our family, when Jesus comes and he preaches and he teaches, he says, look, there are going to be some that unite behind my message and my mission, but not all. And so we must not put our families before Christ and his kingdom. Jesus is emphatic. You must seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. You must deny self and follow me. Secondly, love and care for them. And that is not dependent upon whether they are believers or not. 
That is not even dependent upon whether they are good people or not. We are called to love and care for our families. And then finally, share the gospel with them by deeds and by words. Live the life, first of all. That's what 1 Peter 3 says, talking to a godly woman whose husband is not a believer. Live it out in front of them. And then when you have the opportunity, share the message. Only a step. Only a step. Come for he bled for you and died. Jesus' family took that step. You can too. He's the same loving Savior yet. Jesus, the crucified. Jesus, the one who was raised with power, declared to be the Son of God. If we can help you do that today, come as we stand, sing our song together. Hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, Come unto me, I pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this time that we have to come here as a church to, to study your word and, and to worship you together. God, as, uh, um, as we celebrate Father's Day today, I just pray that you be with all the fathers here at West Irwin. Um, thank you for uh, what they do for their families, um, and I pray that they're just blessed today. Father, as we go out in, uh, into the world this week, I pray that you just... Um, Help us to be a light for you. Give us opportunities to show people who you are and just help us to be the Christians that, that you want us to be. Be with us and thank you for your son. It's in his, and, uh, it's in his name we pray. Amen.